Uh, pastor Mark White needs no introduction with most of us. He is, he is my pastor. He is, uh, has been one of the greatest influences in, in my life uh, throughout adulthood and marriage, has, has walked with us and worked with us and, and, uh, and has just ministered to us in so many different ways. I can't, I'd be up here for his whole time if I continue to talk about it, but I'm honored to have him back up here. And, uh, and teaching and preaching and, and loving you guys. So, Mark Wyatt, come on. <clears throat> Are we live? Do we turn this on? Hit the button. Hey. Hey. Hey, what's up? What's up? You want to go to lunch? <laughs> yeah. We'll go to lunch. We'll talk later. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, yeah, I, I'm just thankful for everything that you've done, and I'm thankful for who you are and, and who you've been in my life and, and our families, and we just love you. Oh, and I don't want to start crying so much. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm live. I don't know if we're live. Um, <clears throat> wow. So many things to say. Well, let's just start where I left off a year and a half ago. <clears throat> so let's finish that chapter. Um, no, it is good to be back. It's good to be up here again. Feels like home. I think I'm going to come back, Justin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I have loved my time here, but you're doing a great job. And I am grateful. So, you know, I have to give these kudos too. And I want to, I'm grateful to Justin. You know, it's been, it's been a blessing for me. And I don't say that lightly over the last year and a half since I stepped down and retired from here. When people say, well, how's the church going? I've been, I've been able to say the church is still going strong. And I was able to hand it off to a son. And... um. So that's really good. You know, and, and I'll just throw this in, too, for those of you. Some of you have heard me say this before. There's a lot of you you're going to hear have heard what I've said before. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I mean, you guys really did do it right. I think what churches get wrong sometimes, at least in the stream that I grew up in, when it comes to choosing pastors when there's a pastorless church, is very often we, we treat getting a new pastor we do the same thing that colleges do when they're looking for a new coach, new football coach. We, okay, let's find some guy who's doing it well where he is, and then let's see if we can offer him more money to come do it over here. And then, uh, but what happens, those churches are much more organic than football programs, and, and you lose vision, because I think what churches should do is find somebody whose heart already beats with their heart who already sees the vision that they see, who has that sympathetic resonance with them, find somebody who's already preaching what they know their identity is, um, and then, you know, pray about it and ask them to come in. The problem is too many churches don't even know who they're supposed to be. They don't know what's important to them. They don't know what their identity is. And we know through, through the, uh, our years here that our identity is three things. You remember? Kingdom, sonship, and grace. I mean, those three things, and it still is. And so, uh, Justin, I'm very proud of, of you and Tracy and what y'all have done here in the last year and a half. You guys are now seasoned pros. Um, and if you've ever pastored, you know it doesn't take long to get that, that title. So you are. You know, earlier, um, Justin was saying when he stands up here, you'll see him with his eyes closed because he's ADD, and if he sees a squirrel, he might get distracted. Can I just say, if you actually see a squirrel, I want to know that. Because <laughs> we might have revival like in that Ray Stevens song. So, um, I think that'd be awesome. Uh, oh, 
so many things I'd love to say to you. I am so grateful for uh, the time that I had here with you guys. You know, it was 14 years ago just last month. In fact, Justin and I were having lunch on that day when I realized that's the day it was. It was the 14th anniversary of starting this church uh, in our living room and then grew the other building and here. And, and so, again, I'm very proud that, that the church has continued to thrive and change lives. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, uh, Bill Watts, who I think is an elder at Covenant, and he's preaching there more now, and he's older than I am, but he said, he said, Mark, he, and I haven't, I've never had anybody ask me this. He said, what was the greatest thing about being a pastor? But you know, it didn't take me long to, to know, and I told him, I said, it was, honestly, um, it was seeing lives changed. I mean, that, that really is the most rewarding thing, is now, after a year and a half being away, to be able to look at some of you and say, we were there. that was important. You know, there are people who's, again, as we've said before, there are people in this church whose family trees will be different than the trees they grew up in. You know, and so, so that, that's an awesome thing, and I love that. The schedule wasn't bad, you know, I mean, except when you're like Ben Danny and working seven days a week for three years. That's crazy. Nobody should do that. <laughs> so... But, um, but no, I love so much about pastoring and, and of course, loved you guys dearly and deeply. Um, I want to talk to you today, and I really did, uh, and I am doing this, but I, it was in my heart to come to you with a message that I have not preached here before, right? It took me a year and a half to come up with something new. <laughs> um, so, but there's something that, what, what I want to talk about over the next little bit is, um, you know, I, here's the thing, I... I, I had to follow, have to follow Jeremy Thrash, and I got to follow Ben Danny, and so they have set the bar high for me, and I intend to take that bar and put it right down where it belongs, Paul. So, no worries <laughs> for you tonight. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, and again, I love it. I just love, uh, is, you know, and again, I feel that, Justin, some that we've talked about that sympathetic resonance, the piano's in tune. I feel that. I felt that, you know, when Ben was preaching this morning, I just, I was like singing my song, you know, I just love that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're listening to um, classic rock, if you're my age, and you hear a song that you haven't heard in a long time, and you find yourself singing along every word. You know, that's what it feels like to me to hear a message like yours today, Ben, is just that. Ah, and then what Justin preaches is that, yeah, I get that it's my heart. In fact, I had a classic rock thought this morning to uh, apply, and I, I mentioned this to Ben during the break. Um, you know, Paul's theme song, if you're familiar with classic rock, probably would have been, according to Romans 6 and 7, I fought the law and the law won. <laughs> but then Jesus stepped on the scene and he said, I shot the sheriff. So... <clears throat> That's all I have to say about that. I'm trying to work in knocking on heaven's door, but I, I don't know <laughs> where that would go in there. Okay. You know, and many of you, if you've heard me before, you know that I say this before almost every sermon. An old Scottish preacher I love, Roy Hessian, said one time, he said, he said, you know, I've heard hundreds of sermons in my lifetime. Most of them have been good advice. Not many have been good news. And that became a guiding light for me over 30-plus years of preaching is I always wanted to make sure that, I, that what I gave you was good news, not good advice. Now, when you get good news, 
it changes you. We're changed because the good news, obviously, is the gospel. And the gospel, that good news, changes us from the inside out. And so, honestly, once you start getting changed by the gospel, you don't need as much advice, right? Because your inner, your compass changes. You, you, you find that you, you know, it's like learning to drive. There comes a point where you're not worried about going off the road because you want to stay on the road. I mean, you just, you decided you want to. So it's better to be on the road than stuck in a ditch. So you, the gospel changes. You don't need as much advice. Now, there is, there is a certain amount of practical instruction. Once you get that, and once you get changed, there is some instruction in the Scripture about, okay, now here's how we live. And we're actually going to go there a little bit today, but I want you to understand I'm not giving you advice. What I want to do, and again, I'm excited about this already. I, I, we're going to talk about something here in just a moment that I believe has bound up and paralyzed so many Christians for so many years that the church has been ineffective at winning the law simply because we're so bound up in this thing. And, it, and it's something you might not even ever think of as being related to our freedom, but it absolutely is. And it has to do with the, the one question that I have heard more than any other uh, while I was pastoring. And again, in you know, 25 plus years as a, as a senior pastor and then more, I haven't been preaching since I was 17. Um, here's what people would ask me more than anything else. You ready? How do I know God's will for my life? What they really mean when they say that is, how can I make sure I don't screw up God's plan? Right? Now let me ask you, all of you who have, who have faced any kind of decision in your life, any of you that have ever had any anxiety about how do I know I'm doing what God wants me to do? Anybody? Let me see your hands. Have you ever had any anxiety about that at all? Yeah, that's all of us. <laughs> or most all of us. Because we, we really do, but it comes out of a genuine heart. We want to live a life that's pleasing to God. We want to follow. We, we, we want our lives to go right we want it to be in God's plan, and so we're always wanting to know what's God's plan for my life. Now, one of the reasons, and, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bash on Bill Bright. He did wonderful things with Campus Crusade, great, great things. But I think one of the things that perpetuated this was the the first law of the four spiritual laws. You remember that? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, what that kind of got into our heads, at least into mine, was that okay, there's a plan. I got to work the plan. Because that's, especially in 20th century, 21st century Western mindset, that's kind of how we think. Got to work the plan. Got to plan the work, work the plan. This is the American work ethic. Got to work the plan. And if you don't work the plan, you're going to mess everything up. Um, my dad, as my, I've got brothers here, and our dad, when we were growing up, he was a civil engineer. And so he had a drafting table at home. And uh, so he would do extra work, but he'd do it at home, you know, in the family room. He'd be back in the corner while we we're watching TV and I remember going to sit up on his lap and playing with that electric eraser. Coolest thing I ever saw in my life. It's huge. It looked like a metal light bulb. But you plug it in, and it was an eraser. And it would, like, get away from you. I would erase his whole plans. So, so, so I know the anxiety of erasing the master plan. I didn't want to do that with my life. So, but, but I remember, though, playing with that. And my dad had blueprints that were, frankly, a foreign language to me. I mean, it was lines and it was numbers and I, I couldn't make it, but it was very impressive. But I really understood those plans were important because those plans determined how safe the building was going to be, whether or not the building succeeded. 
So um, I grew up with this idea of blueprints and, and that God's plan for my life was a blueprint. I needed to figure out how to read it. And if I didn't follow the plan correctly, I really might mess the whole thing up. And so we've had this idea, and again, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I think this is a common experience. A lot of us have had this idea that God's plan is this big machine that he set in motion for our lives. And if we step out, here's how we would say it. Boy, you don't want to be out of God's will. Hey, don't get out of God's will. You get out of God's will, the whole thing grinds to a halt. Right? Anybody ever caught that, had that idea? You don't get out of God's will. Don't make the wrong mistake. So you, and so it's kind of like this. We, 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 we say, people say, hey, do you want to go this, do this, or do that? We have a decision to make. We say, well, let me pray about it. And we don't even know what we're praying about. We don't even know what we're praying for, to hear. What am I supposed to find out? But we want to get it right. And so it kind of becomes like a, I thought this morning, I was thinking, it's like a Jeopardy game. You know, with God's will, it's, um, uh, I'll take cities and God's will for my life for 400, Alec. The answer is Denver, Colorado. We buzz in and say, cities, the city where God wants me to go to find my wife. And, no, I'm sorry. The answer is, where does God want you to take a job offer when you have, are married and have two children and the youngest is 14 months old? See, no points this round. And the thing is, but we, we, that's kind of how we treat God's will for our lives. i got to know the specific. God, okay, God, I've got these job offers in Denver and Dallas. Which one do I take? Where do I go? What is God's will for my life? And a lot of anxiety when you're dating. You remember that too? When you, Those of you who are my age or thereabouts, remember you're dating. How do I know who to marry? God's got that one person for me to marry. What if I mess it up? What if she messes up? What if I choose wrongly? What if she choose wrongly? What does that mean? How do, and so we go crazy. I've got to find that one God's will. What's God's will for my life? We, and then we get so bound up in this, what happens is we end up living in fear because we're afraid of messing up our lives, and we become what we've always said legalism produces. Legal, legalism produces orphans who are self-referential. And when you're self-referential, when everything in your life and all your thoughts are about how does this affect me, you know what happens? Um, the world goes whizzing by you. And lost people go by without Jesus because you're, we're con- so consumed about doing the right things ourselves, we miss them. And so the, the, let me jump to the end. The application of this is if we can get free in this area, we will be free in lots of other areas, and we will be free to actually notice the people around us because we're not so scared anymore about whether or not we have messed up God's plan for our lives. All right, so turn to the verse for this. There's actually a bunch of them, but let me give you the, the banner verse, Jeremiah 29.11. Let's start right there. <laughs> One of the most misused verses in all of the Bible. All right. Jeremiah 29.11. Let's look at the real meaning of it, okay? <clears throat> I'm like you, Ben. I like to hear the pages change. And I, does anybody have a Bible app that when you go to a certain place, it actually makes the sound of turning pages? Somebody needs to invent that to make preachers like me feel much more comfortable. All right. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you. Oh, by the way, Ben was preaching out of King James Version, KJV. I, I use a Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, HCSB, which some people refer to as the hardcore Southern Baptist Version. But 
Um, uh, so Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I've known that. I have known this verse in so many versions over the years. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord. Plans of good and not evil, to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And I love this verse. I really do. I mean, I, I love it. It has, it has meant so much to me over the years. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not harm you, for good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. That is an awesome promise. Now, you remember, those of you who have been under my tutelage, you remember we talked about how to interpret Scripture. You can't interpret Scripture without um, a Christocentric hermeneutic. <laughs> I'm going to explain that word for those of us new, but you know, Christocent hermeneutics is basically it's this the it's the method of studying scripture. That's hermeneutics is how to interpret scripture, how to get a good and there are laws of interpretation, rules of interpretation. Do this first, do this first. So there's ways to interpret scripture. That's all called hermeneutics. Well, a Christocentric hermeneutics is a Christ-centered, Jesus-centered interpretation of scripture. So I said this at Ben's Church, too. I told you, I still want to do this someday. I'm going to get a bumper sticker that says, I heart the ecclesiological logical, and eschatological implications of a Christocentric hermeneutic. <laughs> and you should all get one and put it on your cars. It's going to be hilarious. So, um, but I, I do love what it means for the church and for end times, for all those things, to interpret scriptures through a Christ-centered lens. Okay, so what that means is we can't really take passages from the Old Testament and say, okay, what does this mean for me today? And jump thousands of years over the cross to 2017 and say, here's what it means. We've got to take it through the cross. So, so let's, let's just do that really quickly. So God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Now, who's he saying this to? He's saying this to his people, Israel, who are in exile in Babylon. And they're all upset about being in exile. And God says, it's all right. In fact, right before that, he says, listen, while you're in exile in Babylon, do this. Um, go ahead and marry the, the, the women, of, which they weren't supposed to do before. You remember? God said, don't marry from other nations. He said, go ahead. Settle in to Babylon. You're going to be there for a while. Marry, have children, um, bless the city you're in. Uh, you pray for it. I'm, you know, go ahead and do all that. He said, because I know the plans I have for you to prosper you, not to harm you, for good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, so God was promising an exiled people restoration back into his presence. Well, when did that get accomplished? On the cross. We who were far off have been brought near. And so God took mankind who was exiled from his presence through sin and through the accomplishment of what Jesus did on the cross, he brought us near again and he brought us back into the promised land, which is what? The kingdom. He brought us back into the kingdom, which is his land. We got back into the garden. See, so God accomplished this. He brought us, we were exiled from the garden, he brought us back into the garden. So when God says, listen, I know the plans I have for you, he's not looking at just Israel and Babylon. He's looking all the way down the line to you guys. He's looking to Jasmine. He's looking at, at Renee. He's looking at Phil. He's looking all, he says, I know the plans I have for you. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to accomplish a way for you who have been exiled through sin to come back 
into my presence, into the house. You get into the house now. You're not sleeping in the barn anymore. Now you're in the house. So he did that. Amen? Amen. Thank God he did it. I know the plans I have for you. So what does that mean? That means that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you now have God's plans for you. His thoughts toward you are good and not evil. That's good news. Can I tell you, God is not out to get you. He's not, you remember, the, again, well, you've, some of you heard me say this before. You remember, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because the Father up above will squash you like a bug. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. That's what it always meant to me. And I, love, I love the bumper sticker I saw. I know I'm not supposed to, but I love it. It said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> because, you know, that's kind of our theology. God is watching. You know, listen, he's not watching to make sure you toe the line, as Ben was talking. He's not watching to make sure your performance measures up. In fact, let me just refer back to what Justin was saying, and Ben too would tie it all in here. You know, when, when Jesus said, as Justin alluded to, when Jesus said, um, okay, you, you've all heard it said, don't murder, don't kill anybody, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. He wasn't saying, so be careful not to hate people. Don't hate, don't hate. You know what he was saying? <laughs> you, can fight, fall, you can fight the law, the law wins. Just understand, you, go ahead, let's, let's just lay this out there. You're not going to win when you fight the law. You are going to hate somebody, and so you'll have broken that commandment. So can we go ahead and level the playing field? Commandments are broken. Now what? See, and Jesus became the now what? And he fixed all that. But that's the point. When he said, um, you know, if, you, if you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus was just saying, guys, give up your struggle against the law. Just lay it down, man. It's, this ain't working. You, and if he was telling the Pharisees, you know, you find somebody, you make them your disciple, you try to train them on how to defeat the law. And all you do is make somebody twice the son of hell you are. Love that verse. That could be my favorite verse in all of Scripture. So, but so he's saying, forget about fighting the law. There's a solution. And it is acceptance not based on the law. There's a better covenant. All right. So, so God is writing this to the people. And, and so historically, he's saying to them in, in Babylon, listen, I'm going to bring you back. Now, overarching in the meta narrative of it, he's saying, but that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to bring away where all of you get to come back into the garden. But we, we like to look at this verse. I know the plans I have for you. All right, that word plans there is the Hebrew word makashabah. It sounds like, I love it because it sounds like um, Vulcan. <laughs> it sounds like something from Star Trek. Makashabah. Makashabah to you. So, <laughs> so um, you know, we do one of these things. So, Makashabah. And, and, and it's found like, well, a number of times, probably 30 times or so in, in the Old Testament, um, 11 of those are in Jeremiah. And most of it, it means, it means this. It means um, thought or device. And under that, it can be a thought, a device, plan or purpose, or an invention. So watch. That word most often means thought. Not plans, not blueprints, thought. Now, what we're talking about, remember, is this thing of how do I know the will of God? Because that's how we've translated it 
into our culture and, and into the New Testament, we go into the will of God as the plan of God. How do I know the will of God? Jeremiah is saying, here's what God said. I know my thoughts toward you. They are good and not evil. I want to prosper you, not harm you. I want to give you a future and a hope, which again means God's not out to get you. It's all right. He's, it's all right. We can relax. Um, and again, you know, one of the things I love about Ben's message too, you know, this kind of message about just the truth of grace, you know what it does? It just helps us rest more. You've heard me say this before. I love Hebrews says, so strive to enter into his rest. If you're going to work hard at anything, work at resting. Just try harder to rest. See, and eventually you'll get, to, you'll get it. So um, the, the word means thought. In fact, the first time it appears in the Bible is in Genesis 6, 5. Now, Genesis 6, 5, you know, this is this hinge verse there in Genesis. We didn't get... We barely got five chapters into the Bible before God was sorry he even made us. You remember, it says, I love King James, said, and it repented God that he ever made man. Five chapters into it, and God repented. He repented. I'm so sorry. You know, it's like Ben was saying, I love this, where, where, because he swore by himself. This is just the way my brain works. I'm sorry. I apologize ahead of time, but I just keep thinking God looking at Israel... He swore, I swear, kids, I swear to me, if you don't. <laughs> so he said, but, and he, but he said, God repented. He looked at how, how screwed up man was, and he said, oh, that was a mistake. But he didn't start all the way over. He said, there's got to be somebody here with, with whom I can salvage this thing. And yet at the very beginning, even from Eden, God saw the end from the beginning. And he knew what was coming. But five chapters in, we messed up the whole thing. So I don't know how we think we're going to do God's plan correctly. We can get five chapters. But in, in chapter 6, it says, And God saw the, the, the thoughts. He saw that the thoughts of man were evil continually. What that meant was it, he saw man's schemes, intents, thoughts, Direction. That's, that's this word. It's the same word where God says, I know my thoughts toward you. All right. So here's, here's the big um, the, the, the banner statement for this message, okay? So I'm just going to put this out there and we'll build around it for the next few minutes. I believe when we talk about God's plan for our lives or God's will for our lives, um, we really can't talk about that we can't talk about our lives in context of God's plan for us except by looking back. When we look back on our lives, we can say, well, okay, obviously this was the way God had it planned because here's where I am now. Uh, and I, I listened to Ben, you, you said that in your message too. Well, I went to the Bible college and uh, I come to find out that was where the Lord wanted me because that's where I met my wife. We can look back on our lives and say, okay, I, I can see now. When we look back, we can say, all right, I can see now what God was doing. Right? You ever done that? You ever look back? Can you just do it right now real quickly. Just kind of look back in your life. And even the things that you thought were terrible, you can look at those things and say, you know what? I can see now what God was doing all along the way. Right? But listen, I think it is, I think it is, it is not helpful to say at best, for us to try to look forward in our lives with that same perspective. Okay, now what's the next step? What's the next? How is God going to lay this out? And think that we can know that. So, here it is. Ready? I believe it is better for us to think about God's plan for our lives, 
not with the word plan or will, but using the word heart. So the better question we ask ourselves is, what is God's heart for my life? What is his heart for me? Because that's really what this word thought in Jeremiah 29, 11 means. I know, God's saying, I know the heart that I have toward you. It's good and not evil. To prosper you, not to harm you. To give you a future and a hope. So the question then becomes in our lives as we go, as we, as we walk, as we have decisions to make, the question becomes not what does God want me to do, but the question becomes what is God's heart for me? And then what decision can I make that is in line with God's heart for me? Does that make sense so far? I think it'll get clearer. All right. And we're going to see how... People in the Bible did not at all live by this whole thing of, I got to know God's will for my life. But what happens is we, we get faced with a decision and we say, I don't know what to do. Say, say it's, you know, who to marry. And, um, you know, let's, let's say you're like, I don't know, Ben. Uh, or, or let's say Daniel. Let's say you had your Daniel who's happily married to beautiful Lauren. But let's say you were Daniel and you had like six girls that wanted to marry you. I mean, <laughs> I know, true story. So, and Daniel says, well, I guess I should get married. I need to choose one of these ladies. So, and so Daniel starts praying, all right, God, I'm going to, what is your will for my life? Who should I marry? Because there's only one, <laughs> and they're all behind a curtain now, because now it's let's make a deal. Now we've gone from jeopardy, let's make a deal. And I just want to make sure that I don't get zonked. <laughs> I don't want to choose the wrong one and, you know, go home with, a, with the board game of life as a consolation prize. So, but we, we, get all, all, we get full of all this anxiety. How do I, and again, very often it is this thing of, okay, I got two job offers. Or I got this one job offer. How do I know? Do I stay in this job? Do I take that one? What do I want to do? Y'all, I think more often than not in all of our lives, when we ask that question, God's answer most often is, what do you want to do? Just, what do you want to do? As long as you're choosing in line with my heart for you, I don't care. I really think God is saying that. You want to know what my will? I don't care. Now, I do care that you marry somebody who you are equally yoked with spiritually. I do care about that. So why? Because it's revealed in Scripture, that's God's heart for you. See, God's heart for you is to be with somebody who is compatible with you spiritually. God's heart for you is to be with somebody who loves you, you love them. So the thing, God, you know, again, I had these anxieties, right? When I was little, I really did. I knew God was going to make me marry the ugliest girl in town and send me to Africa as a missionary. Now, I, I don't say that to belittle those of you who have been missionaries in Africa. Um, you thought I was going to say something about being ugly, but <laughs> no. But, but listen, when you're eight, that is not an attractive plan. And I knew the girl. <laughs> so, the, <laughs> but that, that's not an attractive, when you're eight, that's not what you, but, but the thing is, we, you know, but the thing is, here's the thing. We, 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 we sing this song, I surrender all, and that's a scary thing. It's scary to surrender all. 
Because we think, oh my gosh, I'm giving up complete control. And yet we know we need to do that. We know as believers we want to give up complete control. We want to surrender all to Him. But we're afraid that if we surrender all, God's just going to make us miserable. You know why I know He's not? Because I know what His heart is toward me. It's good and not evil. To prosper me, not to harm me, to give me a future and a hope. So most often, listen, I mean, again, you, somebody, we could just kind of close it now. Most often when our question to God is, God, what is your will for my life? Very often he says, what do you want to do? Well, I've got, listen, when, when, when I go with, with our kids into, um, well, it used to be Baskin-Robbins. We still go there sometimes, but go into chill, frozen yogurt, whatever. They have, you know, let's say Baskin-Robbins, 31 flavors. I don't really care what flavor they pick. My heart for them is that I want to give them ice cream. See, my heart is I want them to have something good. I want them to enjoy it. It doesn't matter to me what flavor they pick. I don't care. Just pick one. (laughs) Already. (laughs) For crying out loud. There's a line of people. (laughs) So that very well... No, I'm not trying to... It could be when you ask God, you know... Who do you want to marry? God may say, just pick one already. There's, I got a line of people here asking me the same thing. Just come on. All right. So I don't care what flavor. The thing is, I just, but it's my heart that has taken them to Baskin Robbins. Now I want them just to enjoy it. Guys, listen, if we can get this about, about the next step, about our lives looking forward, then I'm telling you, we will get so free because we'll stop being so freaking bound up by this fear of doing the wrong thing. (laughs) I'm telling you, the church is paralyzed because everybody in the church is so bound up by this fear, what if I mess it up? And we're self-referential, and we're concerned that we have messed up the will of God. So let me just give you a few really cool stories from Scripture about this, okay? I love this. All right. Um, okay, that, that page is done. All right. <laughs> um, turn to Acts 19. I'm going to show you where, according to that doctrine of how to know God's will for your life, how Paul completely missed it. <laughs> if, if we hold up our traditional doctrine of how to know God's will... Uh, Paul was not the one you want to, whose example you want to follow. And yet, we understand, don't we, that Paul really is an example for us. So, Acts 19, in verse 21, here's, here's what's happening. We're about to be in the riot in Ephesus. So, Paul is on his third missionary journey, and, um, and he's in... Uh, well, let's look at verse 21. When these events were over, Paul <coughs> resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. What does that mean, resolved in the Spirit? He made a decision. Paul just said, you know what? I think God wants me to do this. We don't have any evidence that he prayed and said, God, show me your will. And we're going to talk in a minute as we wrap up about, about Gideon's fleece and all that. How, how do we really make decisions? But Paul said he just resolved in the Spirit to go through Macedonia. Why? Because he got to set the itinerary as his missionary journey. 
Um, after I've been there, he said, I must see Rome as well. So after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's in Ephesus, and this is the whole thing where there's the silversmiths coming after him because they're losing money because people are getting saved and not buying their idols anymore. And so they all get in the stadium. The, remember the, the, the Ephesians, the Temple of Diana, and you know, they start yelling, and they're having a riot. <clears throat> and great as Artemis of the Ephesians, or great as Diana, the city clerk had to calm them down. Okay, so now, look at chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying goodbye, departed to go to Macedonia. Why? Because he'd already decided to go there. And when he had passed through those areas and exhorted them at length, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. When he was about to set sail for Syria, a plot was devised against him by the Jews, so a decision was made to go back through Macedonia. Don't you love that language? Look, Paul, he, he wants to go to Syria. And if you're looking at a map, he, he, he wants to go you know, across the sea, kind of southeast. He wants to go to Syria. Why? To spread the gospel. But he heard that a plot had been devised against him by the Jews. And so I love this language. Look, so a decision was made to go back through Macedonia. He turned around and went the other way. How do we know how the decision was made? It doesn't matter. Somebody just made a decision. And you know what? God was completely fine with it. He was okay with that. Listen, let me say this to you. <clears throat> especially connected to um, looking back on our lives and seeing God's plan when we look back. You know, I know people who, who got married and had a terrible marriage. And in the middle of that, it would have been easy for them to say, man, I missed it. I missed God's will for my life. And the thing is, they very well might have chosen somebody that was not in line with God's heart for them. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying we can't make mistakes. They may have done that. But now they look back on their children and grandchildren, and now it's impossible for them to say, I was out of God's will. You know what I mean? You can look back on it and say, how, look at these children, these grandchildren. How could I not say that God was in it? Look what came out of it. And so now looking back on our lives is when we are able most easily to say, God was in that. And we, we can start to discern a pattern of God's will there. But again, we can't really project that forward. So stop trying. But we can look back on our lives. So, so a decision was made to go back to Macedonia. Now, was anybody second-guessing themselves? Maybe. The Bible didn't tell us. We don't know. They might have been, but it's, it doesn't matter. So a decision was made to go back to Macedonia. And it says who he was accompanied by and then... Sailed away from Philippi, and in five days reached them at Troas. Okay, so um, look at verse 5. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. Okay, now starting at verse 7, you've got this story. On the first day of the week, Paul starts preaching. He's in Troas. He's preaching the gospel, and he gets so carried away, he keeps preaching. He's preaching all night. You know, I mean, and, and it's preacher's dream. Who's actually going to? be there for church all night long. You get to preach all night. But just like any church, somebody falls asleep. So Eutychus is sitting in the window uh, getting some fresh air, and he falls asleep because Paul's long-winded. He falls out of the window, and he dies. And Paul goes and raises him from the dead. Amen? Great story. I love it. Eutychus is raised from the dead. All right, now listen, listen. Watch. 
Paul resolved in his spirit to go to Syria. Now, was he wrong to do that? Was he out of God's will? No. Why? Because he knew what God's heart was for the people of Syria, right? He knew God's heart for them. Yet, a plot was devised against him, so he made a decision to go the other way. Now, if he had not done that, he would not have been in Troas when Eutychus dies and raised him from the dead. We wouldn't have this great miracle. And at the same time, if he had not gone to Troas, he wouldn't have been preaching that night. Eutychus wouldn't have fallen out the window, and he wouldn't have had to be raised from the dead. You see what happens if we start thinking the if-then? You understand? Listen, I have thought this before, and again, especially in the last year and a half, as I've looked at, at many of you guys here, and the things that we have seen. So, you know, Marianne and I grew up, both grew up here. We went to different high schools together, four years apart. Um, <clears throat> but we grew up here, married here, and then, you know, after we both graduated college, we went to Fort Worth, where we went to seminary. Well, the seminary was on staff to church in Fort Worth, and then we stayed and pastored in the Dallas area about 10 years and saw great things there in the Dallas area. It was wonderful, wonderful time. Well, then we really felt like God was calling us <laughs> to come back here and start a church, so we did. So we started this church uh, as Deeper Life Fellowship 14 years ago. In that time, you know, a few years later, I was standing next to Lee McDougal when he was healed completely of Parkinson's. Still an amazing story. I still cry every time I, I talk about it. Lonnie, whose book is back there, was raised from the dead. Delia Knox, who we invited, you know, I called Levy and said, hey, there's a revival going on uh, at the, the convention center. Come down. They came down. Delia got healed that night. If we had not come back here, would Lee have died of Parkinson's? Would Delia still be in her wheelchair? Would Lonnie have remained dead? Boom, boom, boom. Again, and again, more stories. You could add on. Many of you have stories you could add on to there because we came back. Now, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. If we had stayed in Texas and pastored there, what miracles might have happened there that we never saw? I don't know. Guys, can I tell you something? The kingdom involves a certain element of mystery that we have to allow to remain. We gotta let there be mystery in the kingdom. The fact of the matter is, I believe God's heart. So watch. So because we came here, we were not pastoring in Texas. I don't know what might have happened there. You know, we had Amanda Bloyd healed. I mean, so many we could add. How many Lees and Amandas and and Delias were in Texas that we might have had a part in seeing the kingdom come in their lives? I don't know, but here's what I do know. God's heart for those people, no matter what their situation, is good and not evil. To prosper them, not to harm them, to give them a future and a hope. And their miracle did not depend on me having heard correctly whether or not to come or stay. Do you understand? It's not about God's plan. Well, did they miss their miracle because somebody else here got it? No! God is better than that. He's bigger than that. His heart for them is still good. If we had not come home, God's heart for Lee, for Amanda, for Delia, for Lonnie, for Melvin, for others, God's heart for them would still have been good and not evil. His heart for them would still have been to give them a future and a hope. You understand? So God's, God's will, His plan is not some big machine that if you make a mistake and step out of it, it all grinds to a halt and nobody gets blessed. 
until you get back in. God says, finally, I can get on with this thing. God, he is bigger than that. So whether we had stayed or gone, doesn't it really doesn't matter. Here's the thing. Can I say this to you? You know, you've all heard this. I had this at the end, but I'm not at the end yet. I'm just going to bring it on up. All right. So uh, I've got time. Paul doesn't start till 6. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So here's the thing. You, you've heard people say, um, and, and, and I've said this before, people, you know, when people, they change their circumstances or maybe they move thinking they can get away from their problems. And what do people say about that? You remember the saying? Wherever you go, there you are, right? I recently saw a title of a book about family, specifically dysfunctional family, and it was called, Wherever You Go, There They Are. (laughs) But can I tell you the great truth of Jeremiah 29, 11? Wherever you go, there he is. You, You really are okay. It's all right. In other words, good news, everybody. You can't make a mistake. Now, you know, you, know, you know why I'm preaching this today? That's the beauty of grace. The gift that God has given you through the finished work of Jesus on the cross is that now, because of what he accomplished, and you have his heart for you, you just can't make a mistake. So go ahead and decide. you got two job offers, Denver and Dallas. Where would you rather live? You like big city of death? You want the mountains of Colorado? Pick one. Just Because God, God's saying, listen, it doesn't really matter to me. But where, just know this, wherever you go, there I am. For he has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you. All right. So, how do we make decisions? Oh, let me, oh all right. Okay, then, hang on, wait, let me show you this. Oh, I'm not done yet, but we're, I've, we're good. Y'all Okay. All right, watch this. We've got to go on with Paul. He really messes it up here in a second. <clears throat> All right, so we did 21. Look at uh, chapter 21 of Acts. <laughs> Look at verse 1. <clears throat> so Paul now, he wants to go to Jerusalem. And so, he, I mean, that's really where he wants to. He, he really feels like he needs to go to Jerusalem. And then to Rome after that. Look at 21, verse 1. After we tore ourselves away from them and set sail, we came by a direct route to Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre. I love Luke's description. Because the ship was to unload its cargo there. So we found some disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit... They told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Whoa. Now, listen, if if you're looking for God's direction in your life, and you really are, you're looking for direction, God, please direct me, show me what to do. Through the Spirit, what Spirit? That's capital S. Through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit led these disciples to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our, um, when our days there were over, we left and continued our journey while all of them, with their wives and children, escorted us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said goodbye to one another. Then we boarded the ship and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was the son of seven, and stayed with him. All right. Look at verse 10. While we were staying there many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us to 
took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. When we heard this, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. All right, now if you're looking for God's direction in your life and you've got a plan for a trip you want to make, a mission trip, and some people come to you who you don't know, but they're disciples, and you know they've heard from the Holy Spirit, and they say, listen, the Holy Spirit is telling you, don't go there. You, you, you do not need to go there. And you might think, well, maybe. But then you go to another place and a prophet who is well-renowned and well-respected in that community, a prophet comes to you, takes your belt, ties himself up, and says, the Holy Spirit says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. What are you thinking? Chances are, you and I are starting to say, maybe I ought to rethink this thing. Because God is, right, God is telling me not to go. Correct? Now, if Paul had not gone Would he have missed God? No. You know why? You can't miss God. He's in you. You're in Him. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You can't miss Him. God's going to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. You can't miss Him. But, But Paul, though, who is hearing this very clear direction, God is telling me not to go to Jerusalem, what does he do? Look what Paul says. Verse 10. Um, in verse 13. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we stopped talking and simply said, look at that phrase, the Lord's will be done. <laughs> so Paul got a... I remember when I was growing up, especially in high school, we were in this, this phase. Paul, I don't know if you experienced this too or been, but we were in this phase where we were learning to hear from God. And so there was this whole thing of, okay, i got to get a word. You need to get a word from the Lord. Well, i got to get a word from God. And we go to so the idea was to open up the Bible just anywhere and put your finger down, right, and say, that's my word from the Lord. And God help you if you put your finger on the verse that said, and he went and hanged himself. <laughs> so, and then turn over, go and do that likewise. So you... You're in trouble. <clears throat> but, but there's a word from the Lord. i got to get a word from the Lord. Listen, I, I have known people who really have making what appeared to be wrong turns by getting what they thought was a word from the Lord. Because the thing is, that's not a very good interpretation of Scripture. Now, the fact of the matter is, how do we know God's How do we make decisions? We have got to learn to hear God's voice for ourselves. We've got to have, we've got to learn and, and develop these ears to hear the Holy Spirit saying, this is my heart for you. Just know my heart and then make a decision in accordance with my heart. So why did Paul say no to the clear direction of God not to go to Jerusalem? Because God wasn't saying, this is my plan and there is no other. What he's saying is, hey, Paul, you just need to understand if you go to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. And it very well could be that the people who gave him that message were interpreting it as don't go. But God never said don't go. It could be the Holy Spirit was just saying just be ready. And Paul, though, he said, you guys are breaking my heart. Stop crying. I'm going to Jerusalem. He said, listen, I, in every city I've gone to, I've always been ready to be bound and executed for Jesus. I don't care. My life is His. I know that God's heart For Jerusalem, God's heart for where I'm going is the gospel. So Paul said, listen, I know what God's heart is for me. It's good and not evil. 
to prosper me, not to harm me, to give me a future and a hope. That's God's heart for me. So wherever I go, that's what I'm going to get. And if it looks like being bound up and executed, so be it. Live as Christ and die as gain. I'm good. You understand? Paul's saying, hey, thanks, guys, for your interpretation. Thank you for the word. And, and the word was from God. They were, it wasn't a false prophet. Paul's saying, thank you for that. But listen, I know what God's heart is for me, and I really want to go to Jerusalem. There was no way he could miss God because he was in him. All right. So you seeing a pattern here? Um, and, and, I, and I loved I loved what the people said in response to this. Okay, the Lord's will be done. All right, so um, there is a, an opposite. I'm just going to read this for you real quick. Opposite Old Testament example of knowing God's will for your life in 1 Samuel 28. Um, let me read this to you. Listen, at that time the Philistines brought their military units together into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. Saul is still king at this point. Um, so by this time, verse 3, Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. Uh, in, in verse 5, when Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and trembled violently. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim, which is the kind of like they would throw the stones and like rolling dice, or by the prophets. And Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go consult her. And he's already kicked them all out. So his servants replied, there's a woman at Endor who's a medium. So Paul goes to the witch of Endor. Why? Because he wants to know God's will for his life, but God no longer speaks to him in dreams or visions, but he wants to know what to do. So he goes to a medium, somebody who can tell him what God wants him to do. So he goes to this witch and he says, hey, I want you to call somebody. He's in disguise. And she says, wait a minute. Yeah, I can't do anything for you. The king threw us all. If I do this, king will kill me. Saul says, don't worry about it. I got it. You're good. You're safe. So she starts her seance deal. And who starts? And it says, coming up out of the earth. But Samuel, the prophet, who's now dead. And I can promise you, nobody was more surprised than the witch. So Samuel starts coming up out of the ground, and here's what he says to Saul. What do you want? Why have you disturbed me? And Saul said, I want to know what God wants me to do. And Samuel said, it doesn't matter. God's already accomplishing what he said he was going to do, which is to rip the kingdom out of your hands and give it to somebody else. Samuel said, why would you wake me up? You ever get that from your parents? Why did you wake me? So Samuel said, doesn't matter what you want to do, God's going to accomplish what he wants done with or without you. But listen, what drove Saul to this external decision-making machine? Fear. Listen, when fear begins to drive your decisions, fear of making the wrong one, fear of doing the wrong thing, fear of not being in God's will, fear of God being mad at you, fear of making a mistake, then I'm telling you, you are much more likely to make bad decisions out of fear than you are out of security and confidence. That, again, is the nature of the law. The law makes you afraid, and you're much more likely to make bad decisions out of fear than you are out of security. All right, I'm going to wrap up here, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, so we've got to learn how to hear God's voice. 
Let me just throw this out there. How many of you ever heard this phrase? Boy, you know, I just got a check in my spirit against that. Boy, I have a check in my spirit. You know what that basically... I mean, I've heard this in like, hey, where y'all want to go eat? McAllister's? Mm, I got a check in my spirit. About that. <laughs> you know what that means? I don't want McAllister's. <laughs> but we got to be spiritual about it. Mm, well, I got a check in my spirit. Or uh, the converse is, well, you know, I really have a peace about that. I Man, I just got a peace about that, which means I want to spud Olay at McAllister's. That's what I want. Well, I have a peace about that. And what that means, here, here's what we do. Here's how we use it. Well, listen, I have a peace about going to San Miguel for lunch. What that means is God has told me this, and so you don't get to argue with me. Right? That's how we wield our spiritual authority. I just have a peace about that. I'm just telling you, I got a check in my spirit about that. If you go, it's going to be bad. You're all going to get sick. See, and so we, we, we use this thing of God's will in, in certain ways to manipulate the people around us. And that's just, it's not right. <laughs> all right. If we don't get a sense of direction, we do what see, we, we just do what seems best. If, we, if you don't feel like you've had a clear word from God about what to do, a clear indication, clear sense of lead, then just do whatever you want to do as long as it's in line with what we already know is hard to be for us. Now, God does use doors and windows two times. And what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he said, you know, uh, I wanted to do this, but Satan hindered us. We wanted to go there, but Satan hindered us. Another instance in Acts, he says, we wanted to come to you, but the Lord hindered us. So God does use doors and windows to guide you. If he has a preference about what you should do next, just relax and trust him to guide you. He may not have a preference. If he does, he's really good at getting you through the maze to wherever he wants you to be. It's all right. So relax. I have a bunch of scriptures I'm not going to read, but here... Here's what I love. You know, there's a bunch of verses that really do tell you what God's will is for your life. For instance, um, bear one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. You want to know what God's will is? There's lots of verses that say, okay, treat others, with, you'll love other people, carry one another's burdens, be good to those, um, give to those who instruct you. Let's look at that verse. No, I'm just, <laughs> ah, I'm just kidding. I am. Um, First Thessalonians five sixteen. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See those kinds of things. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, the Bible's full of that. Just go go find those. But when it comes to your decision making process, you, listen. You can't make a mistake. Relax. Rest in God's heart for you. His goodness for you. I'm gonna close with this one little story. Uh, you know, I work as a hospice chaplain now, and I love it. It's great work. And um, I see a lot of people now at the end of their lives. Um, and uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I, on, on a particular day in May, I went to see um, an, an old man whose wife had passed away. I was making a bereavement call on him. He's 97. His wife was like 95. They had been married 60-something years. It was a second marriage for both of them, like in their 30s, but... And, and they were so, they loved the Lord. And they were so close and sweet, sweet old man. And at 97, I'm talking to him and he's just telling me stories about his dad. And, he's telling, and he starts telling me the story about his mother, how she actually had to go, she had a nervous breakdown, I guess, and had to go to Searcy, right? He bet years ago. And she was in the, the mental hospital there. 
He, and he was one of like nine kids. He said, you know, all of us wanted to go see her one day. So we went, we went to see her, and we told the hospital we were coming, and they set up tables for us in this courtyard under an arbor. He said, and somebody went and got my mother, and they brought her down. He said, and she never looked so beautiful and so radiant. They had her dressed up so nice. He said, and we never knew if she was going to know us. He said, but that day she went around and called all of us by name. And somebody asked her, do you know these people? And she said, know them. I raised every one of them. He said, that was the best day of my life. A, little while, a couple hours later, I'm talking to another man whose, whose wife was dying. And uh, she was in another room, and I was talking to him and just, you know, helping him just kind of vent and talk about his heart. And, and he started talking about his childhood in West Virginia. And he said, you know, um, he started mentioning his father when his dad died. I said, how old are you when your dad died? He said, 13. I said, was that hard? He said, no. He said, my father was the meanest man on the face of the earth. And he began to talk about him. He said, but my mother, he said, after, she, after he died, he said, she walked to work. down at the, She worked in the office of the school Every day she walked to work, no matter the weather. He said, as she took care of us and she provided for us and we never lacked anything. He said, and my mother gave to us her whole life. And, and, and I got in my car and I realized that, that that day, it just struck me, was 15 years to the day from when I lost my mother. It was the 15th anniversary of that day. And I realized both of these men had made choices, they'd made decisions in their lives. And often asking, what does God want me to do? They'd taken jobs, they'd made moves, they've had families, they've had careers, they've done lots of different things. But in the end, you know what was on their mind? Their mothers. Guys, can I tell you something? You're going to make a lot of decisions, and maybe not all of them will be the best ones. But I'm telling you, at the end of the day... You know what we're thinking about? And I see this all the time in my job. You know what we're thinking about? The people we love and the people who have loved us. There's a verse that is way overused, I think, and used too lightly in Christianity, but it's a great one for this. For God works all things together for good. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, good news, that's you. You're the ones he loves. You have been called according to his purpose. And he really will work all... That means he takes all your decisions and he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And you can't get it wrong. So be free. Relax. Love people. Be loved by people. Put your heart into those around you. Don't be paralyzed by the fear of getting it wrong. Because... His heart for you, but he's not going to let you get it wrong. Just know this. Wherever you go, there he is. And his heart for you is good and not evil. To prosper you, not to harm you. To give you a future and a hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good. Thank you. God bless you.